This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. Hope you're having a good day. Uh, We've got two major stories developing. Uh, One is the Freedom Convoy testimony at the public inquiry. Chris Barber is up. He is the first organizer to testify about what went on in the streets of Ottawa and Windsor in the winter of 2022 and whether the government's invocation of the War Measures Act, the replacement for the War Measures Act, the Emergencies Act, was warranted, which is the heart of what the inquiry has to answer, the question it has to answer. Was it overreached by the Trudeau government or was it necessary? Um, it is a rapid fire inquiry that is moving through witnesses very quickly. Uh, police chief, former police chief of Ottawa, Peter Slowly just finished his testimony at times blistering back and forth with a police service lawyer about Various things, including whether Slowly was worried about his job and trying to find a paper trail that he had been misled about the intelligence and kept in the dark about the intelligence, among other things. Now the convoy is telling their story. We're also watching the Ontario legislature. Um, This is an extraordinary move by the Ford government to bring in back to work legislation before a strike happens and also to invoke the notwithstanding clause in the Constitution to exempt that legislation from charter challenge. Previous government in Ontario, the Dalton-McGuinty government, uh, legislated workers in the education sector back to work. They challenged it um, and ended up winning in court, and the government had to pay millions. So uh, this is an attempt by the Ford government to circumvent that, and it's raising a lot of eyebrows and a lot of questions. We're going to speak to the head of the union about that Um, and about their wage demands as well. But on the Emergencies Act, Chris Barber this morning, he he has essentially testified today, look, I I came here to do one thing, to protest the government's vaccine mandates for truckers at the border. I wanted that revoked. I wanted people to be peaceful, follow the rules. In fact, even making sure that trucks cleared emergency routes downtown. He also admitted that he didn't, have full control over the group because there were so many groups coming together that he didn't have full control. Here is part of his testimony this morning on why he did what he did and what was going on in the streets of Ottawa last winter. I personally believe that 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 was the only way, I guess, out of it for them to demonize us to the point where they could say insurrection when that wasn't the case. Right there, he's talking about the government tactics towards him and towards the convoy. Interestingly, today, Barber also said he doesn't, he has never read and doesn't want to read the Memorandum of Understanding. Um, This was a group of people who were deemed to be protest organizers who had a news conference and also said before they arrived that they wanted to essentially replace the government of Canada. Barber says he's never read it. He doesn't agree with it. That's not why he came. So the story he's telling is one of, and of course he says immediately, he says that the media got it all wrong and it misrepresented everything we were about. And he says that they were here for, his group was here for a specific purpose. That was the Western-based 
group. Let's hear more from Chris Barber today on the stand at the Emergencies Act inquiry. In January 2022, did you have any understanding of what Mr. Bowder's goals were with the convoy that he had uh, organized? No, I did not. Um, like I said before, it was a matter of, of a whole bunch of different groups coming together at the perfect timing and, and having an input into, this, into, the, into the planning of it, and everyone had their piece. And we were so unorganized for the most part. We, we used whatever we could, whatever means, whatever tools we could find. So he's talking a bit about the disparate nature of these groups. And one of the things that came up today was the horn honking. And a lot of people who didn't live through it um, don't understand how disruptive, uh, disturbing, and uh, what it was like. It was very, very loud. Barber says he tried to stop it. He wasn't in favor of it. And then there was social media that he broadcast later uh, that showed that he uh, he uh, made fun of it and made light of it. So that's essentially the tone from Barber, that we were here for peace and love, that he was overwhelmed by the amount that was coming. He had a focused purpose, which was to get the government of Canada to lift the vaccine mandates at the border for truckers and nothing else. What you have, of course, and the government of Canada lawyer pointed this out, when you do something like this and it becomes as big as it did, you do not have control over what everything that happens. And so Barber's perspective, of course, is not the only story. Uh, the government of Canada lawyer put up a death threat against Christian Freeland, where one of the protesters wrote out an, a message basically saying, we know where you live, you better have security because you're going to get a bullet in your head. Chris Barber didn't write that. Chris Barber's organizers didn't write that, but someone associated with this wide ranging group and associated with the protest according to the government of Canada, did write that. That's the government of Canada's lawyer leading that. The point by the lawyer was, when you start something and it becomes this big, you cannot control everyone in the group. And Barber admitted that was, in fact, the case. So we're going to keep watching that. Um, we will be talking with Tonda McCharles. Um, she has been there day after day. And... Um, what we are expecting to hear from convoy organizers today. And the other thing to keep in mind here, it's very difficult to call anyone a part of the convoy. And Barber makes the point, and he's quite correct, there's multiple convoys, multiple groups. Sometimes there's people who just came down to check it out, came from other parts of Ontario and Canada because they supported the cause and don't like Justin Trudeau. That is the one thing that kind of unifies them all. They really hate Justin Trudeau. They really don't like the liberals. And if you talk to anybody in that crowd, no matter what their main issue was, at the top of the list was a dislike and a distaste for Justin Trudeau and the government of Canada. I just, I found it interesting today that he didn't read the memorandum of understanding and clearly doesn't support it. That's interesting because... A, an established group that held a news conference 
actually did support it and release it. And in that memorandum of understanding, of course, infamously, they talked about forming uh, some kind of a coalition with the NDP and the bloc and overseen by the government or the conservative leader in the Senate and the governor general that would veto vaccine mandates. Like just, that's insane. Like that's just, that, that's, that is, if anybody actually believes that any government anywhere would actually talk about that, that's, Barber disavowed that today because he knows how much damage that did to their credibility, right? I think it was, like I said to earlier in the day, there, there, there was, it was a mistake by the prime minister to dismiss this group as a fringe, but it's also a mistake by this group to actually with a straight face talk about forming policy for the country. Sorry, that's not the way it works. We just had an election. So go out, organize yourselves for the next election and replace the government with MPs, form a government, form a cabinet, and then you can have veto power over vaccine mandates. It's hard to do that. But you can't just drive up on Parliament Hill, disrupt everything, and demand to have control over the government. When we come back, we will speak with Fred Hahn, the president of QP Ontario, about the Emergencies Act, or sorry, about the invocation of the notwithstanding clause and the back to work legislation that's hitting Ontario Friday. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here in Ontario. There is a fierce battle going on uh, about teachers, about education workers to start. Uh, CUPE and the education workers, 55,000, have uh, given the government notice they're going to strike. The government has fired back yesterday uh, saying they will... uh, Bring in, they are bringing in legislation, back-to-work legislation before the strike starts. They're using the notwithstanding clause to exempt that back-to-work legislation from any charter challenge. The Prime Minister weighed in on this this morning. Here's Justin Trudeau. Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. He goes on to talk about how other provinces, without naming them, continue to use the notwithstanding clause. I really hope that uh, all politicians call out the uh, overuse of the notwithstanding clause to suspend people's rights and freedoms. Interesting that um, the day after Quebec uses it for other reasons, and they use it frequently, Mr. Trudeau does not say that. <laughs> and uh, it's, just, it's just very interesting. Here is the provincial education minister, Stephen Lecce in Ontario, talking about why they're invoking notwithstanding. We want to make sure that there is no disruption. We want to make sure that there's no issues, litigation or otherwise, that could essentially get these kids back out of class because of strikes locally or provincially. And when he's talking about any, anything in the courts, he's talking about charter challenges. Uh, this has, of course, captured the attention of organized labour. Uh, in Probably it should across the country and certainly around Ontario not just in the education sector. Uh, Fred Hahn's the president of QP Ontario. Fred, thanks for joining us. 
my understanding here of the division is uh, wages. Um, and the ask that is out there from QP um, appears to be over, and correct me if I'm wrong, over three years, an 11% per year increase. Is that incorrect or correct? It's actually incorrect. What our folks are have been trying to bargain for the last number of months is a wage increase that is a flat rate wage increase, a $3.25 per hour wage increase. This is not unheard of, actually, in our province. You'll recall that the Premier augmented the wages of uh, other workers by $3 an hour over the pandemic. Um, It's a flat rate wage increase because what we're trying to do is make sure that all of our members rise at the same level so that lowest paid workers are not, uh, you know, a percentage increase uh, helps those at the top more than those at the bottom. Yes. uh, So that is what we've been calling for, for certain. Um, But what we've been uh, unable to do is actually negotiate about that particular wage increase. The government had its opening proposal. They gave it to us some time ago. Uh, People will know it. It actually had a two-tier component so that some workers got one wage rate and other workers would get another. Um, And in fact, uh, since that time, until we saw legislation yesterday, we hadn't seen any movement from them at all. Now we've got legislation, which is going to order a collective agreement, um, which circumvents the rights of our members, but also doesn't solve the problems because while wages is one of the main components here, what we are also bargaining for is to put resources back into schools to make sure that we have uh, service security provisions and actually investment in our schools. Okay. The provincial government just... cut per student funding by $800 a student. We're seeing uh, a number of jobs disappear as a result. I, I hear you on those issues. I want to come back to the 11% or the $3.25 per hour. Does $3.25 per hour represent an 11% increase or is that number, are you saying that number is just made up because they're working on percentages offered and it sounds like you are not. And I, I don't need to split hairs on this, but um, when, when you're involved in labor negotiations, uh, language matters, numbers matter. And it seems like we're talking about um, two different ways of measuring it. So where does 11% come from and do you... Is three point three three dollars and twenty five cents an hour? Is that eleven percent? It isn't. Our wages range. When we talk about the average wage of our members being thirty nine thousand a year, that's in recognition that there are people who make more than that, but there are significant numbers of people who make less than that. We're talking here about a workforce where sixty percent of them are laid off every summer. They actually aren't paid. They actually have to apply for EI. Um, and, you know, so it's why we, from the beginning, have talk, been talking about a flat rate wage increase uh, that would actually help all of those folks. Okay. Um, you know, and it, the, this number comes from uh, from the minister, and, and whether it's 11, sometimes he says 30, sometimes he says 50, the number seems to change. What hasn't changed is what our members have been seeking, which is a flat rate wage increase, which will allow them to keep pace with inflation. These are workers who, for the last 10 years, have seen their wages fall against inflation more than 11%, so they're already 11% behind. Mm. And as we know, inflation's raging across our province. There's a real recruitment and retention problem that school boards are having for jobs that are incredibly important. We need ECEs to work with our youngest learners in school, in in kindergartens. We need education assistants to work and support kids with special needs, admin staff to keep our schools running well, custodians to make sure that the schools are clean and safe. That's what this is all about.
If he says, if they say yes to this, though, there are other agreements to come. Teachers, how much do you think the the looming negotiations with other unions is playing a role here? Well, the reality of our members is that they are the lowest paid in the system. But my point is, certainly if they there, say... There if, are other my, I understand. negotiations that are coming, but you can't apply. And it's unfair to say that what we are doing talking about education workers and these and the jobs they do and ensuring that that work is able to be there to support students somehow has an impact on everyone else. And let's forget, or let's remember, no, 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 no. That, when the, that when the minister talks about some of these numbers, he's not just applying it to teachers, he's applying it to school administrators, he's applying it to all the people uh, I, who, are, who are paid wages. And I, we're not I didn't say, I didn't say that, I, what I asked was, all of that in, all of that how much of an impact do you think that's having on the government's stance? Because they are the employer. So clearly, if they say what they settle with you will have an impact on how they settle other agreements. And I'm just wondering whether they are doing this now because they want to send a signal to everyone that these are the more realistic numbers. And obviously you don't accept that. Well, I guess that's something you'd have to ask the government. But what I can tell you is that our members for many years now have often been the ones who are the last to bargain, who get mm-hmm. the kind of scraps about what happens. People don't fall in a, an 11% wage hole uh, just overnight. Uh, people don't, you know, we don't get here overnight. Uh, and it's why we've been trying to talk very frankly and very openly uh, with the government, but with everyone about the challenge that this presents when we're talking about the reality in our schools. Keeping kids in class, putting kids in schools isn't as important as making sure that those buildings actually have mm. the kind of supports in them that will allow our students to succeed. That's what this has been about from the beginning. It's what it's about today. And there is another option. There doesn't need to be a nuclear option by government that institutes a collective agreement and, and, and essentially could spark a constitutional crisis by, by using the notwithstanding clause. There is another option. The government could come to the bargaining table, could actually bargain an agreement that reinvest in schools and that makes sure that these workers can keep pace with inflation. There's they, room to do that in yes. our budget in the province. They, There's room to, do, to make these decisions. This I, is a choice they're making. Last question. They would say that your ask here um, is, is, is attempting to fix the problem you identify in one contract, and they can't do that. L- last question. What would you say to that? This wouldn't fix what's, uh, what's been accumulated. This would only allow us to begin to figure out a way forward. It would fix things that they immediately did just in their last budget by removing $800 per student funding, which resulted in us seeing layoffs of important workers across the province. Mm. School boards need that funding in order to keep those jobs there, in order to keep those supports there. But we also can figure out a way to have people, to have these workers' wages keep pace with inflation. It doesn't solve all the problems that have accumulated over the last uh, well, more than 10 years. Fred Hahn from QP, thank you.
You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. We've been talking about the Ontario government's unusual, for now, use of the notwithstanding clause in the dispute with education workers that hasn't actually happened yet, by the way. Um, I, I will point out, generally speaking, you use back-to-work legislation when they've gone off the job. This is number one, unusual that they haven't walked yet. They've just in, they've just said they're going to walk. Um, and the minister and the government of Ontario saying they're not risking any days lost because of what kids have gone through during the pandemic. Fair enough. Um, the other very interesting thing is the use of the notwithstanding clause. I want your thoughts on this today. 71010. Give us a call. 1-855-633-1010. Again, text us at 71010. Is this overreach by the provincial government? Quebec has used this in the past quite regularly. And for those who don't know, the notwithstanding clause in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms essentially exempts various laws for provincial purposes, basically allows a law to come in that is not subject to charter challenge. I don't know, I don't know if the, people who wrote the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the Constitution, repatriated the Constitution, envisioned it being used for labor rights. And, and that what that is what's caught the attention of a lot of unions and a lot of leaders. The fact that labor rights have been essentially on this issue suspended in Ontario on this particular piece of legislation. Um, in Quebec, of course, it's been used on the language law. It's been used on other pieces of legislation. And it, I find it very, very interesting that the prime minister doesn't weigh in on that, but the next day weighs in on Ontario and the te- and the education workers and the labor rights issue. Because, and let's, let, let's just call it as it is. It's, it's very difficult for a Quebec-based prime minister uh, Justin Trudeau from Quebec to criticize someone like Francois Legault over language rights and over protecting the French francophone culture. And that's what it's been used for there in many ways, in many different pieces of legislation. But he feels free to criticize this morning, the Ontario government for doing this on education workers and on the back to work legislation. By the way, the legislature, if you're not in Ontario, the legislature started sitting at 5 a.m. to pass this. This is a text from Ottawa area. Gray, my sister's an EA for the Durham school board. She lives below the poverty line. I know because I do her taxes every year. She's absolutely deserves a raise. She works with special needs students and has to had to has had to wear a Kevlar vest at times to protect her from being attacked by her students. I get that the ask for an 11% wage increase per year over four or three years is ridiculous. I blame the union's poor negotiating over the years for these workers. Now they're trying to play catch up. They dispute the 11%. Thanks, Brian. But they're saying a flat increase of three twenty-five an hour. Lecce pretending his first offer being his last offer is good faith bargaining is laughable. First Bill 124, now this bill using the notwithstanding clause to attack collective bargaining. This government hates labor. This is a huge overreach. This is um, 
Mike from Vanier from the Ottawa area as well. We're taking your other texts as well on this. Um, and we're getting a lot. Uh, I, I know, and I put it to Fred Hahn, that governments bargain by sector. So if you're a nurses union and you get an agreement, like for instance, the doctors yesterday in BC, 50% increase up upwards of $380,000 a year from 250,000. So a, a significant bump up. I think that government will face similar, if not identical demands from each of the healthcare unions that they face. Now, they can make the argument at the table, doctors are different. Doctors are higher in demand and more specialized. So therefore, that's why we had to do what we do, what we did. We're not devaluing your work. I know the Ontario government here is trying to set the tone in the table for negotiations going forward. A yes to this union at this amount is a yes to other unions. And that's what they're trying to avoid. But do they have to do it with a sledgehammer? A text from Toronto. Firefighters and police officers got an 11% increase. Government officials get huge yearly increases and we as education support staff get less than half a tank of gas per two weeks, 1.25%. That is part of the government offer. On one case, it is 1.25%. They are saying they're offering people below a certain wage more than that, but I hear you on that. 100, this is Burlington, 100% on Ford's side. This is what I voted for. Unions need to stop using my kids as pawns to get what they want. That's from Ken. I, I, I do think the government feels and governments generally feel on the issue of strikes and education workers that the public has shifted. It has been months of in-home learning and the tolerance for strikes, I think, overall would be quite low. That doesn't necessarily, I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is a smart thing or a good thing the government has done with the constitution and that, you know, I wasn't in the negotiating room. I don't know how much negotiating they did, but I do know that they believe the public has a very, very low tolerance for strikes right now in the education sector. We've got John on the line. John, what is your take on this? You're calling from Hamilton, is that right? Yeah, it's it's an inconvenience, obviously, if they were to go on strike. I have two kids. I work in the trades, mm-hmm. um, 10 and 12, and to have them out of school, yeah, that's a big inconvenience. But if you work out their salary, 40 grand, what does that work out per hour? Yeah. I don't know, 17 bucks an hour? Like, that's just above minimum wage. That's not a living wage. And so... Yeah, maybe some of the jobs aren't as highly skilled as other ones, but an ECE, I'm sorry, but you're going to school, you're getting educated, you're getting qualified to go in there and work with, with, uh, with children, with kids. And so you're supporting them. So to say that that's what the increase is, and they haven't been increasing their wages over a decade. And so for them to come out and say, hey, we want this, it might be a bit of an increase, come where somewhere in the middle, but 2.5 with inflation over uh, four years, I don't know, yeah, I guess you could argue that, but look at the cost of living. It's just unethical. You're taking away people's rights. They have a right to strike. They have a right. You're, you're, you're forcing a contract on individuals, and people are like, well, if they don't like it, they can get out. Yeah, they can, but who are you going to fill it in with? Like, yeah. 
it's, 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 I don't know. I as disagree a, as, with it. It's unethical. And as a tradesperson, if they go out, I'm assuming that would complicate your working life because you'd have yeah, to. Yeah, it would. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But I, I, again, it's about people's rights. They have a right to do this. And for the government to come out and put this on them, that's not right. So I, 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 dis, I highly disagree with it. And what does Leachy, what, uh, Leachy, what does he make? What's his increased salary every year? What does that look like? Like, yeah. how much does that guy make? It's more than 40. It's definitely more than 40. That's for sure. Appreciate the call, John. Thanks. Thank you. So interesting here as well, folks, uh, not to get to Ontario, but Doug Ford won Ontario with a lot of support from unions that he took from the NDP. And so this is a very interesting play here. A couple more texts before I get to break. He weighed in on the Ontario legislation because he now wants payback for Ford not showing up to court. I think that's referencing the... Uh, I think that's referencing the uh, Inquiries Act. I'm not sure that that's at play here. Um, From Oakville, the notwithstanding clause is a farcical part of our Constitution. So suggesting that invoking it is somehow unconstitutional is just daft. Okay, I I think what you're saying there is you don't accept the notion that there is a notwithstanding clause to begin with. And you can't call it unconstitutional because the um, you don't agree with it being in the Constitution. It is in the Constitution is our law. um, But. Uh, Thank you for the text. I hear that. Not overreach at all. This is from London. Many of us are tired of these unions playing games with our children every four years. They need to go back to school. COVID has been hard enough on them. We will have more on this and other issues when News Talk continues. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. This is News Talk Today. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, Just an hour or so ago, Federal Immigration Minister um, Sean Fraser uh, revealed the new plan and new targets. And it's an eye-opener. Usually when governments do something like this, particularly on immigration, you know, they talk about sort of incremental, here we are, here we're, here's where we were, we're going to go up X percentage point, not Canada, not in 2022. By the year 2025, the goal will be to have 500,000 new immigrants to Canada every year. Now, just to put that in context, looking at previous years, Here's the federal government's goals for 2021, 22, and 23. They were 401, 411,000, 421,000. Um, in February, they updated that to 431 in 2021, uh, 450,000 in 2022, and 451 in 2024. And now they're going even higher. If you look at they were in the mid 300s, 341 in 2019 pre-pandemic. If they hit 500,000 rough calculation, that is an almost 70% increase over 2019. That is extraordinary. Why are they doing this? And I want 
I want your take on this. Other countries are doing this as well, by the way. Canada is one of the most welcoming countries for immigrants in the world with the highest levels of immigration in the Western world in some, by some measures, by some measures. And I know it's a, um, it, it can be a hot topic and I'm not going to put anything on that people attack immigrants on and all of that. Uh, let's keep it as informed and intelligent as possible on this topic. So 71010, text us your thoughts. The reason they're doing this is we have a labor shortage. Our birth rate is not keeping pace. And in order to achieve an economic growth, we need new Canadians to come here and buy things, to be blunt. Look at the housing market in immigrant hubs where immigrants are settling. Places like Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, uh, Ottawa, Halifax, Calgary, Edmonton, lesser of an impact, but still significant. They are, they are buying houses and owning property there. New Canadians, new immigrants, driving a lot of the demand for housing. Obviously, we have a housing shortage. Uh, Fraser saying that Canadian industries are facing a significant labor shortage with about a million job vacancies across the country. The new plan puts an emphasis on increasing the number of immigrants who will be admitted based on their work skills and experience over the next three years. So there will be a requirement that, I mean, that says to me, they're going to, they're going to prioritize people who prioritize people who have trades training, for instance, who have tech training, who can fill maybe high tech jobs that go unfilled, all sorts of things around the spectrum and use Canadian citizenship as an incentive to come here. What are your thoughts on this? Text us at 71010. If you live in one of those big centers, you know that it immigration, large swaths of immigration can and do um, change neighborhoods, uh, increase value in homes in many cases. They more people, more demand on services. It can create, it's not, it's not a utopia. It can, the other thing is that we, we need to be able to have an intelligent conversation about the adjustments required for all Canadians of all backgrounds when you do increase immigration like this. It is not seamless. And I, and, and I think you're seeing some of that it's not a backlash, but it's perhaps a discomfort with the changing nature of the country. And many people who um, feel uncomfortable with it are often silent about it because they think, oh, people are going to call me a racist because I'm raising a question about immigration. This is an economic argument. Immigration needs to happen in a big way in a place like Canada and other developed countries if growth is going to continue. Some texts on this. Where are they going to put everyone? What houses? Why won't the government take care of Canadians first? Where are these people going to live in tents? We have less than zero homes available now. The housing issue for current Canadians and future Canadians is massive. It is massive. I'm okay with immigration, but do we have housing for the influx? Will that make housing more affordable? No, 
They need to pay, they need them to pay for taxes. Um, and it will, uh, th that is a, I'm just going through a couple of the other texts. That, the housing issue is a massive issue, especially because um, a lot of communities that you're listening in are under pressure for housing. And as you know, it's, uh, it has cost, uh, housing costs have just gone through the roof, even with the latest sort of softening of the market in various places. This is insane. Most of the problems we have right now are related to our overwhelmed infrastructure. This is only going to make absolutely everything worse. That is Kevin from Pickering. I'm not sure about that, Kevin. I understand the sentiment. Um, I'm not sure about whether you add people into the mix who generally, by the way, uh, uh, immigrants, gen generally speaking, and almost, almost um, across the board, when they take that decision to uproot and to move, they work and they work and they work. They start small businesses. They sometimes do double and triple jobs. So, um, and I know Kevin is not suggesting that they sit around and ask for government services. He's not. He's saying that the system as a whole, the country as a whole, infrastructure wise is stressed. More people's going to make that worse. Quickly, Bill in Peterborough is on the line. Bill, what are your thoughts on this? Boosting immigration up to 500,000 a year. Hi, Bill. Can you hear us? Yes, I'm here. Go ahead. I'm a little scared. Of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little scared about this because, like I said, uh, with the health care, I've got some, uh, some medical issues and I'm having a hard time getting in the, into the hospital and, and the nurses and the, everybody's stressed as yeah. the nine. How, how, do, how is our health care system or even teachers or whatever? I'm just saying, how are we going to handle more people coming into Canada when we can't handle the people we have now? And with bringing people from other countries, we're going to have to uh, train them uh, in English and the diversity and that because they're going to have to use the hospitals too. So we've got a big, uh, a big scenario that they're not looking at, I believe. Thanks, Bill, for the call in Peterborough. Fair point. Um, you can't, you can't add sixty-eight percent more people to the population without investing in the infrastructure and healthcare, schools, roads, and all of that, and maintain your standard of living. Um, and, you know, Bill wasn't suggesting they're not welcome. He's just saying, let's do the numbers here. What, like, are, can we take this when in here in Ottawa, the children's hospital over the weekend, people had to wait more than 15 hours to see, to see a doctor, a child, you know? So there's big problems. That is the direction this government is going right now. Stay with us. is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. We've been watching the inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act quite closely. Today was the first time we heard from a convoy organizer. Chris Barber from Swift Current was the first on the stand uh, talking about what it was like organizing this, how he saw the convoy protest 
and the reaction to it. Here's a part of what he had to say. In January 2022, did you have any understanding of what Mr. Bowder's goals were with the convoy that he had uh, organized? No, I did not. Um, like I said before, it was a matter of, of a whole bunch of different groups coming together at the perfect timing and, and having an input into, this, into, the, into the planning of it. And everyone had their piece. And we were so unorganized for the most part. We, we used whatever we could, whatever means, whatever tools we could find. He describes a somewhat chaotic scene of everybody coming together. He says a number of interesting things pressed on various things he said in public and on social media on the stand today. Tana McCharles, senior reporter at the Toronto Star's Ottawa Bureau, uh, joins us now. Tana's been watching this very, very closely. Um, thanks for joining us on a break, Tonda. I appreciate it. Uh, tell me about uh, the, the story Barber is trying to tell on the stand today, particularly as he started um, and, and sort of the tone he tried to set this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, hi, Graham. Yeah, no, Chris Barber basically is trying to set up a, sort of a scenario where the judge understands this as a peaceful protest that was only ever about trucker mandates, the cross-border trucker vaccine mandates that he said he personally opposed, and that's why he got involved with this. But it quickly snowballed the protests, and he said, uh, you know, uh, th- there were many other people that joined in, and he's he's painted himself as a somewhat contrite sort of participant now in hindsight, but he talked, and I think this was, you know, interesting. He revealed sort of a lot of of the inside detail about the power struggles that were going on within the convoy organizers themselves as they arrived here in Ottawa. He talked about how he thought there were deals uh, that would allow the trucks to park in designated areas, he suggested. And this betrays a little bit of lack of knowledge on his own part, that he thought they could set up, they had permission to set up in Majors Hill Park and what he called Confed Park, but it's Confederation Park. And parks which he's never seen, even to this day, he said, but that the truckers were supposed to set up there. Instead, when they arrived, you know, the Windsor truckers had gotten here the day before and were all sprawled across Wellington. And he thought it would have been better had they had these other parks to set up in or stay on the Sir John A. Park, McDonald Parkway. Um, In fact, you know, it looked like the whole uh, protest quickly split off into factions and there were disagreements among themselves as to the goals of it. Chris Barber says Mm. that he knew nothing about that whole overthrow the government memorandum and he wasn't part of that. He distanced himself from any of the violent statements or or, uh, goals of of any other participants and said he had nothing to do in the main, in the main, the truckers here in Ottawa had nothing to do with the the various other protests that sprung up uh, across the country. In, In some ways, the police in particular slowly was saying the same thing, that it's that it's this sort of amalgamation of aggrieved people with a whole bunch of anger and it's kind of going all over the place. And it seems like Barber's trying to say, hey, I'm I'm working with the cops. I'm trying to make an emergency line mm-hmm. uh, lane open. I'm kind of the good guy of the protesters. But at the same time, you know, and he's saying I, I didn't like the horns. And then they they show in at the inquiry, they show a social media post where he's kind of enjoying the horns. So I guess and, and it depends what the horn. judge says of this. And egging them on, uh, you know, egging on the yeah. horns and egging on those who he said they had legal advice to resist any police who would come along and, and attempt to enforce the injunction that the city residents got against the honking, saying while he hated himself, they, they were advised that your, your, your truck was your home and the police would need a warrant to somehow get in and stop you from honking the horn. Look, Chris 
Barber has every reason to um, cast himself in that light. Uh, but it wasn't just slowly and Chris Barber also saying that there were disparate groups involved and that there were many causes and groups who were not directly aligned with truckers or vaccine mandates, but had many other goals. And some of which were stated as the goal to overthrow the government, uh, stated in writing, in fact, that was the intelligence that the OPP and the RCMP all had in advance. And frankly, who needed intelligence? It was all over social media. If you read a newspaper, you saw a newscast, then you knew what the stated goals of so many of these disparate groups were, and that it was going to be, uh, uh, I guess, uh, a whole mishmash of causes. And that's what the police were warning ahead of the convoy was the risk that they wouldn't be able to control it. And and one of the interesting moments in the inquiry this morning was when um, a government of Canada lawyer flagged that, look, you know, you guys were putting out these in the convoy itself. It's organizers were putting out daily reports and updates and talking about, you know, the conspiracy theories of the world economic forum and Freeland being tied to it. And, you know, this very and, and Barbara says, Oh, I had nothing to do with that, and you know, I didn't endorse all this stuff. But then the government lawyer puts to him, Look, uh, you know, on the, the day that you guys were fanning the flames on World Economic Forum ties with Freeland, she gets a, a, a very graphic death threat, bullet um, to the head, email, yes, right, yeah. So, so, so just these these moments where uh, the, the, the government of Canada lawyer was asking the inquiry to consider that, uh, some of these people who say that they were there for only, you know, uh, nonviolent purposes, couldn't control the flames that they were fanning themselves. And Mm. so that was an interesting moment. You know, all of that kind of speaks to, well, what was it that the police and the security officials and the ministers and the government um, were thinking about as they saw this thing approach and unfold? February 16th was two days after uh, the Emergencies Act was invoked. Yeah. And it was just before the crackdown came. Yeah. And so that was an escalation in rhetoric that, you know, we hadn't seen in, ter- in terms of the, the details of the death threats facing some of the, the people in and around this. What did you make uh, last week of the police dysfunction and the turf wars? How much of it was, is backside covering today and how much of it was... Um, real confusion and fighting behind the scenes. I guess we don't really know, but it seems like it was a combination of both. Actually, I think we can absolutely say it was both. I mean, at the time, we knew that the police response was bungled. At the time, I was reporting the police, the Ottawa police had no plan up on the 13th, which I guess later that night, the thing was uh, the final plan. There was a plan approved. Mm -hmm. But, But we knew that there was tension among and between the forces. We knew there were tensions within the Ottawa police service. Uh, what I find interesting now, though, is that in the testimony, you know, the, the truth is in the documents that they wrote at the time. What I find in some of the testimony is now a lot of uh, there's a lot of sort of slight revising of history um, mm-hmm. in in the sense that, oh, you know, they respond. You know, the OPP says, oh, we respected that the Ottawa police were doing their best and they were severely challenged and they just needed supported me being supported. Meanwhile, you know, in the documents, it shows that they're like tearing their hair out at the behavior of the some of the Ottawa officers. And uh, likewise, we're seeing now documents come in about just some of the text messages going on between um, the top chiefs, RCMP and OPP, talking about Ottawa. So no matter what they're saying now, I think some of the truth is also revealed in the documents that. While we knew it was bad, we didn't know how bad it was, and we're seeing that right now. And a fire hose, fire hose of news, 
uh, as slowly Goodness, said, yeah. many. Like, it's just, it's rapid fire. So, Tonda, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. All right. That's Tonda McCharles Bye. with the Toronto Star. Follow her on Twitter as well. She's one of the great reporters um, giving us a blow-by-blow account if you can't watch the uh, testimony. Also, watch the testimony. For all of you people out there listening, saying there's this grand conspiracy from, you know, the media and everybody to cover things up and to to do this and to do that. There it is, warts and all. It's live on everybody's stream, CTV News, CBC, Global. The Globe and Mail is covering it. The Star is covering it. Mainstream media is all covering it, you know. So see for yourself and uh, have a look. I'm a big fan of primary documents, primary testimony. If you don't trust anybody, watch it yourself. And what are your impressions? And keep in mind, as Tonda pointed out, it's a combination of the testimony and the documents and one person has seen it all, or will have seen it all. That's the judge. And he's got a report out by February whether they overstretched and shouldn't have done the Emergencies Act or it was justified. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Uh, boy, we're going to do another section here. We're getting a lot of um, a lot of response on the immigration targets moved up by the federal government. The target, uh, just for perspective, uh, in 2019, pre-pandemic, 341,000 new Canadians admitted to the country, immigrated to the country. Uh, by 2025, they want to get to 500,000. They are roughly, uh, Canada is roughly above 400,000 for 2021. So regardless, a, a significant increase, if you take the 2019 number to the 2025 target, it is uh, up about 68%. Um, lots of reaction to this and a, a lot of concern about housing and the price of housing and the availability of housing um, in response to this. Um one of the reasons Canada is so expensive and unaffordable to live is a lack of population that should be 75 to 100 million, ideally, uh, suggesting there's lots of room out there and there's lots of room for development. Um, with respect to the cost of running municipality, the cost of urban sprawl is much more if the municipality than if the municipality grew upwards. Simply build more skyscrapers and less suburbs. That's one idea on the uh, growth of the population. Um, this is based on nonstop economic growth, which is not desirable. Well, I yeah, I hear you on that. Nonstop economic growth means nonstop, you know, lots of other things going. But if you go the other way, where there's no growth or flat growth or negative growth, it's much worse. Uh, ask Japan about that. Um, and uh, it's um, it's it's not a pretty sight either. So. The, th the thing is, if you're going to, if you're going to continue to grow a population, which many people view as a positive policy choice, um, you, you need more people to do that because our birth rate's not keeping, not keeping up. I, but, but I, you know what? I, I just, I'm hearing this from your texts and all of them, most of them are, um, uh, in a good spirit and of debate. And it's not about, you know, don't come here. You don't belong here. I know that sentiment is out there. 
um, and I appreciate that it doesn't come in because we need to be able to have discussions on change and on population change because the the assumption is always that more is better and can I I, I want to ask all the government people out there the liberals in particular and and those who are who are um, who are who believe this 500,000 number is the correct number and we have to go this way um, can we have a discussion about that and about whether that's right for the country and what are the implications for the country without descending into name calling and suggesting that everybody who raises a question about this is racist. I, I just don't think that's fair. Um, I, I, I know when you raise questions about immigration, you do get racist sentiment out there saying horrible things about people that are, people are not welcome. I understand that. But I also believe that you can't, significantly change a policy like this without having a fulsome discussion about what it could mean. Like I live in a place that has new schools in suburbs with 13 portables outside. And so if you're talking about growing in urban centers, um, growing the population over the next couple of years significantly, and most of the immigrants will come to cities, what does that mean for those suburbs that have new schools with 13 portables outside. So are the school boards ready to take this influx? Are the provinces ready to provide the healthcare and the education for this influx? And even raising those questions, I understand sounds like I'm suggesting I'm, I'm opposed to this number. I'm not opposed to this number. What I'm opposed to is not having a discussion at all about what this number means to the broader society because other G7 countries with similar populations have different policies and aren't letting as aren't, aren't, aren't growing their immigration numbers nearly as much as Canada on a per capita basis or, you know, on a, um, you know, like Australia is much more restrictive. I'm not suggesting that's a better way to go, but in this country, I don't think we even have these discussions really about you know, about what, what this is going to mean down the road. And I think that's the anxiety that a lot of people have who are texting in. I'm 33 years old. I would have kids if I could afford a home and raise them. That's Rodney. That sentiment is not, um, is not isolated anymore. That sentiment is out there all over the place that these kinds of policies, um, are not helpful to people who are here now. Now, the minister and others would argue strongly against that, suggesting that Rodney and other people in smaller communities, I don't know where Rodney's texting from, but smaller communities outside the urban centers can benefit from an influx of immigration as well, right? That, you know, more people mean more money for um, a greater tax base. Yes, a, a demand for housing, but that also comes with a greater tax base. Um, a, a greater spend from the provincial government and from the federal governments on services. Um, but we never really talk about that. We just, um, we just absorb, uh, the, uh, the, the change in policy in the immigration. And generally speaking, places like Vancouver and Toronto, um, and Montreal get the bulk of the, the new immigration and, onwards we go. So I, I just, I, I think I'm seeing that in, in a lot of the text, that anxiety out there that, um, 
that this kind of a policy change creates and questions it creates. No doctors to handle the influx, nor enough social services. A lot of the immigrants are economic. That's a fact. They'd better encourage Canadians to make more babies instead of letting more immigrants in. Well, that's not going to happen <laughs> because our birth rate is, it, I mean, the pattern is pretty simple and it's stayed that way for quite a while. So um, the, the, a higher birth rate is not going to, uh, also it's not going to happen overnight. Like you're not going to change that kind of behavior overnight. Um, that kind of uh, family planning overnight. We are simply not having as many babies as um, as we used to. And so, and so this is, and, and I, I want to point out the other thing that when we talk about and have questions about the impact of immigrants on Canada, it is 99% positive, if not more. They do not come here to put their feet up. They do not come here to take something away. Generally speaking, they come to build. That is a truth. Um, and and um, we are not getting texts suggesting they're coming here to, to um, you know, um, all the old racist memes about people putting their feet up and being lazy and getting social services. By and large, that is not true. That is not true. If you uproot your family from another country, learn a new language and a new culture, live in a place like Canada, you are not doing that um, to take advantage of a, of a, of a welfare state. Uh, I'm not suggesting that doesn't happen in certain circumstances. It, there's abuse in every system and there's, there's abuse in the immigration system as well. But by and large, it is a significantly positive thing for the country. One, another text here on healthcare. I'm on a waiting list to get a doctor. 800 people have had of me. I believe that is part of the problem. Um, that there's a lot of people here who need doctors too. So I think they have to, it's, it's easy, it's easy to, um, suggest that immigration is the reason our healthcare system is stressed. That's not the reason, but the question can be asked and should be asked. Can we handle this by 2025? Can we handle 500,000, that target, if we're at 430 some odd thousand now, an extra 70,000 people, generally speaking, going to the large cities in our country? I, th I think we should have that question, but clearly the federal government believes we can because they're bringing in the policy. When we come back on News Talk today, thank you, by the way, for all your texts and calls. We didn't get to all of them, but thank you. Um, when we come back, we are going to talk to astronomers about a planet killer out there. Yes, that's right. A um, dangerous planet killer asteroid. I think this is one of these ones where in 150 or 200 years we have to worry about. We'll find out all about it when we come back. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Glad you're with us. Boy, we have uh, really got a big response on the immigration uh, issue. Uh, government just announcing 500,000 is the new target. Uh, so keep those uh, responses coming. We'll try to get to th some of those. Um, 
this story has been getting a lot of attention. Astronomers have saw, spotted a, an undetected dangerous planet killer asteroid, which sounds uh, horrible. Um, uh, they announced the findings in the uh, Astronomical Journal detailing a th three near-Earth asteroids, NEAs, that were found using a dark energy camera in Chile. Uh, joining us now to talk about this is Scott Shepard, an astronomer at the Earths and Planets Laboratory at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington and the lead author. Tell me about what you've found and sh should people on Earth be concerned about this? Uh, yes, great to be on. And uh, no, I don't. people should not be concerned. Uh, we are simply uh, looking in a part of the sky that's never really been looked at before for, for objects that uh, could collide with Earth, so asteroids. And so we're just simply looking and monitoring for these objects. You never know if one uh, could be on a trajectory to collision course with the Earth. But none of the ones that we have found are on a, a collision course. But we're, we do believe there's another, there's a handful of them out there still, of these one kilometer bigger asteroids that we call planet killers. And we're looking at a very unique place in the sky that no one's looked before. Basically, we've turned our telescopes towards the sun and we're looking interior to the Earth's orbit in the glare of the sun, which is very hard to do. Uh, but we're doing it kind of for the first time to the depth we're doing it to, trying to find these uh, near-Earth asteroids. And when you talk about, why do you describe them as uh, planet killers? Because of their size, if they ever did hit? Yes. Uh, if if uh, a, a one kilometer or bigger asteroid were to hit the Earth, it sounds like it's kind of small compared mm -hmm. to the, the Earth. It's uh, thousands of kilometers in size, but... Our, uh, our atmosphere is a very, very fragile ecosystem. So anything one kilometer or bigger hitting our Earth would throw so much dust and debris up into the atmosphere. It would sit there for years. It would block out the sun's light, and it would be a, a mass extinction event, basically, uh, that seemed like when it, when it killed the dinosaurs. Really? And um, what, uh, what is it about this telescope that allows you to see them now? Yeah, so generally the way telescopes work is uh, the smaller telescopes have big fields of view, so you can, you can kind of point them towards the sun and cover big areas of the sky looking for these rare asteroids. But the larger telescopes, it's like looking through a straw. Uh, they're great if you know where something is, but they're very hard to use to find things. But uh, this dark energy camera that was put on uh, the National Science Foundation United States Telescope down in Chile uh, changes the game on that. It's, uh, we have the largest camera on a four-meter larger class telescope. So we went from being able to observe like one full moon in one image to 11 full moons in one image. Mm. So now we can, and these are much bigger telescopes. And when you're looking towards the sun, we're only looking in twilight towards the sun. So the sky is actually quite bright still. You're fighting the sun's glare. Uh, so we need a big telescope to find these actually fairly large objects still. Uh, and so that's the game changer here is that we're using bigger telescopes now to see fainter and fainter. Do we know before this telescope, do we know um, how many of these were out there? I guess we don't unless they, they hit, right? And they haven't? Well, yeah, we've, uh, so we found a lot of, uh, most of the asteroids we found are exterior to the Earth, and we've covered that area pretty well, the dark night sky. And we know that there's about 1,000 near-Earth asteroids that are planet killers. And we found most of them, 95% of these objects are now found. So the vast, vast majority of them are, are well cataloged. But the last few remaining ones that we haven't found that we believe are out there, just doing the statistics, we can kind of guess how many are out there. We think there's 20 to 50 more of these to be found 
Uh, and so that's, uh, and most of these would be in areas we haven't looked before, uh, and that's the area near the sun where we're, we're, we have a hard time looking. If you do see one and find one that might be more of a danger, is there anything you can do about it? Uh, there's a few things possible, but there's not much. Depends on how big the object is. We, there's recently that NASA had a DART mission that actually just happened a month or two ago where they actually rammed, it's a much smaller yeah. object, but, but they rammed this very small asteroid and they found that they moved the asteroid much more than they thought they would. Uh, so the, the options of, all you have to do is deflect an asteroid very light, very slowly, very smallly, and it will miss the Earth. I mean, it's just a, it's a, an angle and an impact momentum thing. So, uh, yeah, you could send up something. If we know it ahead of time, you'll need to know years ahead of time to get something up there. But uh, as long as we have the time, the years ahead of time to do it, it should be no problem. The problem is we want to make sure we have those years. Mm -hmm. Scott Shepard, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. Yep, thanks for having me. All right. That's Scott Shepard in Astronomy with Earth and Planets Lab of the Carnegie Institution in Washington, talking about found asteroids that um, that potentially could be a threat i didn't know that actually i i saw the you know a, a kilometer of asteroid width like it's obviously big but i thought well if that lands in the ocean what's the big deal i guess it is a big deal i guess it is a big deal and if it doesn't land in the ocean it's even worse um okay your texts keep coming in and i'm reading them all as many as as i can on uh, on immigration i got a couple of minutes here unless you're indigenous you're an immigrant or your family was immigration is great come to canada and prosper we better start building more motels and hotels we can't even reduce the problem of homeless people what do you think rents are too high no health care so th there's that anxiety again uh, that yeah uh, the, the system you know, appears everywhere you turn now, it appears to be under stress. And um, you can't look at our hospitals and say more people right now would be good. Obviously, this plan for more immigration would also come with more spending and more building. Um, uh, you know, what does it mean for universities? What does it mean for high schools, elementary schools? What does it mean for roads? What does it mean for cars? What is, you know, all of these things if you're going to grow the population, have to respond. And governments and societies will do that with varying degrees of success and failure. Nothing's going to be a, nothing's going to be a runaway success, but it is, it will be interesting to see, um, where, where the opposition is on this and where the conservatives are on this, because, um, I, I do not believe like, you know, if, if Pierre Polyev is going to be successful, of course, as and wants to be prime minister of the country, he's got to grow support in cities, grow support with new Canadians, which he's been attempting to do. And so immigration policy um, is will be every party's policy. Um, you, you will not find, maybe Maxime Bernier's party will be the exception, of course, but you will not find a lot of political parties saying, we're going to slow immigration or we're going to limit it. I don't, I'm not sure what the conservatives response will be to this, but they're, they pitch themselves as a party of business and a party of, of, um, of prosperity. And, uh, our businesses need people as you've seen. So it will be interesting to see what their, 
what their response will be. And also, before we leave this, um, are, what, what are your thoughts on, on debating and talking about immigration? I've found it to be absolutely empty, very little debate about this subject. And in the last even 20 years, it seems that, um, and I think I know why I think it's, um, if I think there's a fear that if you are particularly now, if you are a politician in a party and you raise concerns about an immigration policy and suggest that maybe Canada is being too small a liberal with immigration, you're going to get yourself in trouble really quickly. And so people just don't have the debate and they, we, we just don't question it. I mean, the government has just announced 500,000 is the target for 2025. Right now we're at 440 some odd thousand. That is a large increase in a short period of time, just a few years. We'll see if they hit the target. This is News Talk Today. Stay with us. Talk today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. This is just an extraordinary story. So many people have used um, DNA testing and uh, things like ancestry DNA uh, to find out things about themselves and their history. Well, a woman who lives in Yellowknife found out that back in 1969, she found this out just in January of this year, that she had been mistakenly switched at birth at the hospital in St. John's. And she's grown up without her biological parents. Um, and she was recently reunited with them. Uh, just, can you imagine that? Um, and she joins us on the line now. Caroline Weir-Green uh, in a yellow knife woman born in Newfoundland. Caroline, thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'll just have to correct you though. I wasn't born in St. John's. I was born in Springdale. Sorry. Yeah. That's where the Two different places. was. Yeah. Yeah. The Springdale hospital is the ones who, who did it. <laughs> so this is how it's, as it reads, like this was not a nefarious thing. This, or we don't know. It was a mistake we don't know. that nobody caught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I personally don't think it was a mistake. Uh, it um, it uh, has happened to quite a few families. We know of at least five that has happened to where they were given the wrong baby, but the mistake was found uh, because they were given the wrong sex of the baby. So that is one part of it. But the other part of it is that through uh, the girl that got switched with me, uh, through her doing our DNA, we found out who her father is. And we found out that at the time, his common-law wife worked at the hospital when we were born. So that is the other part that um, is why actually we want an investigation done. That's why we're asking. You're suspicious that this was a an intentional thing. There's a pattern that is, Yeah, That is 100% correct. Mm. Uh, the woman who I thought was my mother was uh, with a man. We've got through DNA that um, 
he is the father of the girl that was switched with me and his common law wife worked at the hospital when we were born and she worked there for many years. What what would the motive be? Do you have any idea? Well, um, we heard they couldn't have children hmm. and a small town Springdale, you know, it's, uh, it's commonly known and, um, being small town Springdale, I, I don't think that woman would want to have a child in that area looking like her husband for forever to come back on her. Right. So, yeah. It's so strange. So, so what, what did you, what did you, first of all, take me back to taking the DNA test. Were, were you always suspicious or growing up? Did you wonder uh, like, like, yeah, I did wonder just because I was a little different from the sisters that I was raised raised with. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason I was a little suspicious was only because the birth mother that I thought was my birth mother, she had nine children and uh, they weren't all for the same man. They were for a few different men. So mm-hmm. um, being small town, of course, there was a few things said to me throughout my life saying this woman was your dad. This one's your dad. So. I was always curious and in the back of my mind, I did always wonder if the man that she said was my father, if he was my father. So after my dad passed away, that raised me and I thought was my dad. I thought, okay, I'm going to put a hint to the questions. I'm going to do it. And when you took the test and got the results, did it confirm those things that you were told years ago that that's actually your father that or or did they just, were they wrong? No, they were wrong because I, uh, yeah. So So this doesn't, this doesn't, the reason I asked that, I was wondering is, is, was it a sort of a widely known gossip in the town or was it inaccurate, just people being mean to you when you're younger? No, people weren't being mean. I I wasn't treated mean. Um, It is just because I think of who the birth mother was that, you know, she just had an easygoing reputation and, you know, it was confirmed because the DNA uh, of the girl that was switched with me, she did it, and it confirmed that she wasn't the daughter of the man who raised me. Okay. So, so then, confirmed. what do you what, what do you do when you find this information out? Well, you know, it, it. I don't know if you read the other stories, but I've said a few times over now that it didn't hit me. It mm-hmm. really didn't hit me. I mean, I was sad. I was upset. I, I talked a lot to my family members and trying to get everything straight, but. Honestly, it didn't really hit me till weeks later uh, of like the extent of the damage that this has done to my life. Because mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. you found out in your, you're 53? Yeah, just turned 53. Mm. So that's a, that's a full life that you were living that, you know, you didn't have the truth, right? That's right. I lived somebody else's life. <laughs> mm-hmm. So wh- right? what what happens now, um, Caroline? What, what, what do you do now? Well, well, we're, we're, you know, we're fighting with the new plan government to do an investigation. And while well, we're even fighting for an apology, actually, but we can't even get that. But we just we want an investigation because we want to know, like, was this a mistake? Was it intentional? Like, tell us, let us know, give us some answers so we can put closure on it and move on and try to be happy with all this. You know, but uh, with the Newfoundland government, not even they won't even reply to our emails. And you're getting um, nothing from them, and nothing no, from the hospital. Like, no, well, in the beginning, uh, I'll let you know. In the very beginning, I did request my birth records. Uh, they told me I didn't have any, 
Um, I said, well, I was born there. No, you don't have any. I said, okay, can you get them from my birth mother's chart? Uh, They said, oh, our chart has been destroyed. So anyway, that started to look suspicious. Anyway, four months after, so I was sending emails back and forth to the Minister of Health at the time, Dr. Hagee, mm. uh, just requesting and saying, you know, what's going on here? Where are my records? Like, I've already got devastating news. Help me out. Get my records for me. Give me some answers. Uh, four months after it all happened, so in May, uh, I got my records in the mail. I thought they were uh, destroyed. Yeah, yeah. So, well, supposedly they said I wasn't born there. Uh, but, uh, they, uh, gave me records without explanation. I still don't know why they got them or where they got them. Uh, so, uh, in the same turn of events now, the girl who got switched with me, she has for her records. Well, guess what? She got the same records as me. Identical 100%. So what is going on here? Like there's suspicion all around, like from, Babies being switched and found out only because it was a different sex to having no records to having records is like, and we can't get no answers. We can't get no answers. And the best we got is um, Lindsay Jones from the Globe did our story. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the Minister of Health in Newfoundland now, Tom Hosborne, he did send a note back to her because she asked him, you know, for follow up. What are they going to do? He uh, said that he's given his sincere condolences to us. Mm. In the meanwhile, it's just a letter to her. He didn't give us no sincere condolences. Like, and what sincere condolences? That's when someone dies. We didn't die. We're here. Need some We're answers. Just- Right. We just were here. We want some answers and we want an apology. We want to find out what happened. Don't give me sincere apologies and condolences. Like step up to the plate and find out what your government workers did 53 years ago. You know, so, and Mm. you know, he didn't even say it to us. He said to Lindsay Jones, sincere condolences to the family. Mm. You know, that's not for me. That's not good enough. You know, say my name, say my name. You ruined my life. Say my name. You know, Caroline, so, I appreciate I'm sorry I'm out of time. I really appreciate your time. Thanks okay. so much for coming on. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. Thanks for being here.